Well, the last time I was here, I um, spoke on the book of Philemon, which is tucked away in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. And I'd like to uh, read a section of that, the first 16 verses of that again. With you, I'm going to focus today on verses 8 to 16, but I think it's helpful to read verse 1 uh, through 16, just to get a bit of a a feel for the bigger picture. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bolder and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would, like, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you uh, do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. And we'll end there at verse 16. Just a prayer. Lord, help us, we humbly pray, as we turn our thoughts to this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, as we try to enter this uh, living world of the Bible, um, help us, Lord, as we endeavor to immerse ourselves in it and think about the lessons it contains for our li- lives living here uh, in Moodysburn or the surrounding area in the 21st century. We humbly pray, Lord, that you will help us and be our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, let me refresh you uh, in regards to the background uh, to the book of Philemon. Uh, Philemon lived in Colossae. He had a slave called Onesimus. Uh, He doesn't seem to have been a particularly helpful slave. Uh, There seems to have been a fairly difficult relationship between um, Onesimus and his master Philemon, or Philemon and his slave Onesimus. Onesimus decided to do a runner. He decided that he would uh, take off and uh, he would uh, bury himself or lose himself in the faceless crowds of the great city of Rome, which of course was the imperial city and the center of the Roman Empire. And uh, there were a ton of other slaves living there. And it would just be a great place to go and disappear and lose yourself and, and begin a new life, a new beginning as it were. Um, in in the great city of uh, Rome. Not only had he done a runner, but it seems on the way out from what is said in verse 18, we'll come to that next time, that he not only uh, did a runner, but he also had stolen from his master on the way out the door, somehow uh, swiped some stuff, who knows what, whether it was uh, money or whether it was expensive goods or some sort of jewellery, or nobody really knows what he had swiped, but it's clear that... uh, Paul anticipated that Onesimus owed um, Philemon at least something and uh, you get the impression something fairly significant. Onesimus went to Rome, he bumped in somehow to the Apostle Paul, uh, who at this point was a prisoner. He was under house arrest, so he wasn't in a normal prison. He was under house arrest, he was able to have guests and talk to guests. Uh, He probably chained to a Roman soldier, at least a Roman soldier would have been present in the house where he was living to make sure that he didn't escape. But he was able to entertain people and receive people and talk to them and write letters and send letters and, and, and so on. And somehow, and we don't really know how, this runaway slave called Onesimus bumped into Paul. Maybe some of his team members on the streets of Rome bumped into him and said, Oh, we remember you from Colossae. Um, Began to witness to him and... And and maybe he was brought to talk to Paul and there he became a Christian. The truth is we really have no idea how he became a Christian. But somewhere along the line he got tired of a life on the run, uh, the life of a fugitive, the life of constantly looking over your shoulder. He just got tired of his old life and he wanted something more. He wanted something different. He, He wanted this God that his master knew. He wanted this God that Paul knew and somehow, somewhere, he got right with God and he became a Christian now when he became a Christian Paul felt and of course Philemon obviously would have been in agreement with him that one of the first things that he should do is he should go back to Colossae and put matters right with his master Um, now that he has become a Christian he needs to go back to Colossae and put matters right with his master so Paul writes this little letter that we've read a chunk of this morning and uh, he sends it with Onesimus and another character called Tychicus back to Colossae uh, to face Philemon and to face the music and to give Philemon this letter from the Apostle Paul who was their mutual friend a friend of Philemon, a friend of Onesimus and uh, of course 
Paul was friends with both of them. The letter is fairly straightforward. It's not that complicated. It is really a masterpiece, uh, a literary masterpiece in many senses. But it's very straightforward. And it basically asks Philemon to forgive his runaway slave and to accept him back as a brother. Not just as a slave, but as a brother in the family of faith. And there is, of course, the, uh, uh, at least the innuendo that, that uh, they have the same heavenly father who will be holding them both accountable for the way that they treat each other and uh, Philemon is being encouraged to accept uh, Onesimus back as his brother now I want to try and just uh, say a couple of things uh, uh, three things camp on three uh, areas from this text that I've read. So the first thing that I want you to notice with me is just the foundation that Paul lays before he actually launches in and makes his appeal. That's the first thing. Just the the way he sets the scene uh, to make this appeal to Philemon. That's the first. Second thing that I want you to notice about notice with me is, is I want you to notice the change that he describes in relation to Onesimus. Because he's not just sending back the old useless slave that uh, had run away from Philemon. He's sending back a very different Onesimus. Onesimus has changed. He's been changed by God's grace. And and Paul really uh, takes time to document the nature of that change. And how he is no longer useless. He's now useful to both of them. There's been a great change in the life of Onesimus. And then thirdly, I, I want you to think about the restoration that he appeals for or the reconciliation that he encourages however you want to put it so those are the three things the foundation that he lays the change in Philemon in Onesimus rather and uh, the reconciliation that he calls for now Paul's appeal is is fairly humble and it's uh, full of terms of endearment as he writes to his friend Philemon and, and he makes this appeal, his, this appeal to Philemon in a way that is really hard to resist if you look at some of the terms that he, he uses in verse 8 it comes in the form of a request not a demand verse 9 he makes it clear that it's not based on rank or authority and he had every right to insist upon his authoritative status as an apostle but it's not based on authority it's based on Christian love and verses 12 he says that he cares deeply for Onesimus his appeal is heartfelt verse 13 it's a sacrificial appeal because it will cost him he's giving someone away who will be very useful to him in his ministry and in verse 15 he recognizes that God's providence uh, has been at work in the circumstances that have unfolded to bring this young man to faith and to have these two people reconciled so this letter is not a letter from a diplomat or it's not a, a letter from a civil servant it's a letter from a friend to a friend about a friend That's the nature of this letter. And it's a warm letter. And it's full of terms of endearment and uh, emotion. Uh, Paul, I, I think, is interested in leading these two people to a place 
of reconciliation rather than driving them. And that's really important. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, a uh, preacher from bygone generation, once said uh, in a little book, he, or not such a little book, but a book that he wrote uh, to his students, uh, he said, more flies are caught with honey than with vinegar. And uh, he was pointing out that genuine warmth and genuine friendliness uh, does far more for a minister in terms of endearing him to his people or a pastor or whatever than than a a sour-looking individual who looks as if he has spent his life sucking lemons. Uh, So someone who's got an endearing approach is much more winsome than someone who is uh, sharp and nasty and and, uh, difficult. So he's interested in leading these people to reconciliation, not driving them. And it's really interesting to notice the build-up in the first few verses of this little letter. I mean, he talks, he says to Philemon, you're a refreshing kind of guy. You're the kind of guy that I want to spend time with. When I spend time with you afterwards, I feel refreshed. I don't feel worn out. I don't feel like you're draining all the energy out of my body. I feel refreshed when I spend some time with you. That's the kind of person that you are. Uh, and, and your love for the saints. He makes mention of the fact that I've heard about your faith. And I've heard about your love for God's people. I've heard about all of these things. And, and then he goes on to say, and if these things are true, then this is what I I want you to do. So he's really laying the foundation. I mean, you can imagine how your heart would skip a few beats, wouldn't it, after reading someone writing like this about you. You're a refreshing, a refreshing kind of guy. I don't know if you still get those refreshers. I used to get them when I was young, and you put them into your mouth, and they would just burst into fizz and, and uh, a beautiful taste and so on. That's the kind of way that he describes this man called um, Philemon. I think one of the great dangers that face church leaders in the 21st century is is the danger of trying to drive people with an authoritarianism rather than leading them. I think that's a great danger. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard the story about the Israeli, uh, the bus going through Israel with tourists and the Israeli tourist guide saying to uh, the folk on the bus, oh here in Israel shepherds don't drive sheep, they always lead them. And they drove along the road, and uh, as they drove along the road, they looked out into the field, and there was, a, there was a man chasing the sheep through the field. And the Israeli tour guide was so perplexed by this that he asked the bus driver to stop, and he walked back, and he talked to the man that was chasing the, bu- the sheep in the field. And he came back to the bus, and he says, oh, that explains it. That wasn't a shepherd. That was a butcher. <laughs> And sometimes I think God's people, the leaders of God's people are a little bit like butchers. They are driving rather than leading. There's no real encouraging. There's no real stirring up and and, uh, dealing with people with tenderness and emotion and encouragement. Just a little bit of encouragement now and again goes a long way, doesn't it? Look at the way he encourages Philemon here. And I want you to deal with each other. Uh, I want to encourage you at least to deal with each other in an encouraging way. Well, this appeal is based on two things that he makes. um, This sort of foundation that he lays. First of all it's based on love for God. I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. 
Love is something that characterizes all genuine Christians, isn't it? Romans 5 verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 John 4 verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Jesus commanded us to love one another. He says, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So here Paul is writing to Philemon. He says, this is not an authoritative command. This is an appeal based on love. If you care about Onesimus, if you are genuinely possessed of the love of God for a brother in Christ, you will accept him back. If you love me, you'll listen to what I have to say. It's based on love, not this kind of authoritarian approach. But what does it mean to love one another? Is it some kind of gushy feeling that you have when they walk past? Is it the same kind of feeling that you had when you tried to pluck up the courage to ask your girlfriend to go out with you? Well, not really. I would suggest that there were few gushy feelings in Philemon's heart when it came to this runaway slave. I think if he had followed his natural feelings, he would have thrown the book at Philemon, at Onesimus. I think he would have, he would have given him all he could, all he could give him. He had ripped him off, he had run away, he had left him in the lurch. He's under duty, however, to act in love, not go by his own feelings under duty to act in love many Christians don't like the idea that there are duties to be performed in the Christian life but there are and one of the duties that all of us have as the Lord's people is to live in love uh, with each other we are not free to please ourselves we must obey what God says. And 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says that love has no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. Sometimes people hold on to things forever. And they go through life with a permanent chip on their shoulder. They carry their grievances everywhere they go. And when the opportunity arises, out it comes pouring like a torrent. And nothing that anyone does will ever make them give it up. But Christians and Christian love keeps no record of of wrongs. Love does not forgive and forget. Let's be realistic. Love remembers. But it chooses to forgive and it chooses not to keep any record of wrong. And it's on the basis of this love that Paul appeals to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus. I read a book recently that a friend, a psychiatrist friend of mine uh, gave me. I was going to say my psychiatrist. Um, and probably I need to go and visit her more often than I have been driving across the fourth road bridge trying to make my way to Moody'sburn. But uh, she gave me a book and, and in it it said forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. And it is a choice. But it's more than a choice. Forgiveness is a moral duty for every Christian or every person who names the name of Christ. I appeal to you on the basis of love. To forgive your parents who abandoned you. To to forgive your husband or wife who betrayed you. To forgive your friend who disappointed you. 
to, to forgive your employer who fired you. To forgive your last church that treated you tragically. To forgive your colleagues who are downright nasty to you. I appeal to you on the basis of Christian love to be a forgiving person. And that's not easy. Here's the second thing. It's not only based on on love, but it's based on love for Paul. Verse 9 he says, It's as none other than Paul, an old man now, and also a prisoner, that I appeal to you. So I'm, I'm an old man, and I'm a prisoner. Now Paul is around 60 years of age at this point in his life. Uh, I'm 50, so I've just got 10 years to go until I'm an old man. Um, 60's not that old, let's be honest. Is it? 60's quite young, really. Um, 60 is the new 30 in many senses. Um, and the truth is, Paul probably wasn't much older than Philemon himself, to whom he is writing. Philemon's got a son, it would appear, called Archippus, who was a soldier in the work of Christ. So he's a grown man at this point, Archippus. And, and there's every likelihood that Philemon was about the same age as, as the Apostle Paul. I don't think that Paul is referring so much to his chronological age. I think he is referring to the fact that he has had 60 years of hardship and suffering. And... Uh, the 60 years that Paul has experienced are vastly different, different to the 60 years that you and I enjoy in the sumptuous West. He has suffered shipwreck. He's been beaten 39 times on 8 different occasions. He's been stoned. And uh, he has suffered all manner of, of deprivation. He's packed 5 lifetimes, I would argue, into these 60 years. And as a result, he feels a lot older than 60. The aging process has been accelerated by the sufferings that he has endured. And he feels as if he's 160 years of age. And it's as if Paul says, I I know that you're a refreshing kind of guy. Won't you do an old guy a bit of a favor? And treat this runaway slave who has become a Christian kindly? And if that wasn't enough to evoke Philemon's sympathy, he pulls the chain one more time. And this time he reminds them that not only is he an old guy, but that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he was arrested in Jerusalem. At the end of his third missionary journey, he had gathered up a collection, brought it back to Jerusalem, and given it to the poor believers in Jerusalem. He'd been in the temple. Some Jews had stirred up the crowds against him, the Jewish leaders against him. He was arrested in the temple, almost lost his life. He was transported for his own safety to a place called Caesarea Maritima. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll have visited Herod's great uh, harbor that he built there. And uh, he was imprisoned there for two years. And then he traveled on a ship with Roman soldiers all the way to Rome. And now he has been in Rome, we don't know how long, but we assume a year at least. And he's been under house arrest. He's been in prison for three years. He has just experienced a lifetime of of suffering in the cause of Christ. And he's writing to Philemon and he's asking uh, Philemon to forgive Onesimus because he doesn't want Philemon to think, oh, it's all right for you to ask me to forgive this runaway rascal. When you're living the life of a billionaire in in, 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 in the penthouse in Trump Tower, 
He wasn't living the life of a millionaire. He's an old man who carries the, the marks of suffering on his, on his body. And he's in a prison cell writing uh, on canvas or, or papyrus that other people bring to him. Paul is asking to be refreshed by the news of Philemon's act of forgiveness. How discouraged Paul would have been to have heard that Philemon proved unwilling to forgive Onesimus. And how could Philemon have inflicted the apostle with this kind of pain, the news of his lack of grace? Do me a favour, Philemon, forgive this boy. I'm an old man. I don't want to live and, 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 and see you bitter and, and unforgiving. I want you to do something for me, a favor for me. I want you to forgive him. Our willingness to forgive has an impact not just on ourselves, but for others who are watching. If you just think of it like, think of it like this, older Christians in this fellowship, the younger Christians are watching you to see whether you harbor grudges and become bitter in your hearts because they want to see what kind of an example they should follow. And younger Christians, as the older Christians in this church look at you, do they see that despite their best efforts... You walk around harboring grudges and and courting resentment and becoming spiteful in your behavior towards each other. And how does this affect other people in our church fellowships? I was pastor of a church in Canada. I think I've told you that uh, about a million times probably. And uh, you see people that fall out and how it grieved you to see that these two Christians couldn't embrace the love of God and thereby embrace each other. And instead of that, sitting on opposite sides of the church, making sure that they kept an eye when the other one was leaving to make sure that they wouldn't meet them in the entrance hall or around the coffee dock. It's just horrendous. And, and it leaves an awful mark on a fellowship. And, and it just grieves other godly Christians who know that it should be different. So Paul is writing and he says, listen, I'm an old guy. I'm in prison Please, forgive him. Forgive Onesimus. Don't, don't inflict more pain on me by being unforgiving. The second thing he does is he describes the transformation in Onesimus. And a couple of quick things. First of all, he talks about um, uh, Onesimus being his son. Not a son in a biological sense, a son in a spiritual sense. Now, it's not that Paul cause the spiritual birth of Onesimus only God can do that only God can bring about a change of heart but somehow uh, Paul was the instrument that God used in the life of Onesimus to bring him to faith and so in that sense he was his spiritual father I don't know how that all came about as I've said to you I'll be interested to talk to Onesimus when I get to heaven and say how did you become a Christian? But somewhere along the line he sat down with Paul and Paul it would appear led him to faith. And it's a great thing isn't it to be able to look back to a time in your life when you became a Christian. I don't know everybody here. I wonder can you look back to a time in your life when you became a Christian like, like Onesimus. Where you heard about the great transaction where your sin was transferred to Christ. And his righteousness, all of his goodness could be transferred to your account. 
So that when God looked at you, he wouldn't see your sin because Christ had paid for that, atoned for that. Instead, he would see the loveliness of Christ and you clothed in it. That's the heart of the gospel, the great exchange. And you embraced it and you made it yours and you became a Christian like Onesimus. He's my son in the faith. That's how he describes them. The second thing he says, uh, he, he talks about not only his, is he uh, converted, but he says he's changed. Formerly, he says he was useless to you Uh, but now he has become useful both to you and to me the name Onesimus actually means useful and there's a bit of a pun in what Paul is saying here formerly he was useless to you he was lazy, grumpy, awkward he was useless to you I mean let's face it you can dress that up whatever way you like but if you're useless you're pretty much useless uh, there's no nice way to put that. If your wife says to you, after you try, ask, she asks you to do something for her in the house, and you've been unable to do it, and she says to you, oh, you're just useless. It's not good. <laughs> it's probably not good. And, and that's how uh, Paul describes uh, Onesimus. And, and there's no reason to believe that he is using excessive language. Uh, there's every reason to believe that this is a genuine description of Onesimus prior to becoming him becoming a Christian. But now he says he's become useful. He's been changed. The gospel has changed him. Changed his attitude. Changed his attitude to people. Changed his attitude to life. He's just a different person. He's got a different outlook on life. His whole demeanor is different. His his attitude is different. How many times have you seen this? Have I seen this over the course of my life? Where... uh, Prior to becoming a Christian, someone is, is uh, just on a, on a downward spiral. And they are awkward, difficult people and making terrible choices. And then somehow the gospel breaks in. God breaks in. They become Christians. And everything begins to change. Maybe not in an instant, but everything has changed inside. And their life begins to take on a new trajectory. And, and that's... Apparently the way it was with this man called Onesimus. He had become a new creature in Christ. Old things had passed away. Old stinking attitudes had passed away. Old grumpiness. Old awkwardness. Uh, old spitefulness. Old thieving. Old language. It, it was passing away. And everything was becoming new. He was starting to go in a new direction. He used to be useless. But now he is useful. That's what Paul says. Because he's been changed by the grace of God. Have you been changed by the grace of God? And have I been changed by the grace of God? He not only talks about his conversion and his, um, his, his, the fact that he's been changed. He talks a little bit about his companionship. I'm sending him. He is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I was in chains. He, Paul speaks about Onesimus in very tender language. Verse 10, he is my son. Verse 12, he is my very heart. Verse 16, he is very dear to me. Verses 18 and 19, I'll take responsibility for his debts. I mean, you say to yourself, Paul, weren't you once a Pharisee? Weren't you once the guest of honor that gave speeches after dinner at big events? Didn't you see sit at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the finest Jewish teachers? And here you are, 
And, and, and look at how you're describing this person who is a runaway slave. If the Romans catch him, they will, they will stamp his head with a fugitive letter and, and everyone will know that he's a runaway. How can you be so at one with this slave? And it, 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 it must be because the gospel has taken a, a hold of both of them and, and, and has united them together in Christ. Like, you look at church, we're so different, aren't we? We are so different, we come from different backgrounds, we've got different interests. Uh, some of us weird people like me like motorbikes, some of you hate motorbikes. Uh, some of you like reading other people hate reading I mean we're so vastly different why in the world would we keep coming together why would, why would Christians in the book of Acts sell everything that they owe and pool the money so that each other would be cared for because we've become one in Christ because we gather as one around his feet around his cross because the ground at the cross is even and level and all of us are just sinners saved by God's grace that's what has happened here two quick things and and then I'm finished The, the restoration that he expects First of all, he talks a little bit about God's providence. Um, He's been in no rush to get to the point in this letter. I don't know if you noticed that. Like verse 15 almost before he gets to the point. Like there's been a lot of verses. It's only when he's kind of almost two-thirds of the way through the letter that he actually gets to the point that I want you to receive him back as a brother, not just as a slave. And he talks about God's providence. He says, maybe that's the reason you were separated for a little while, so that you might have him back for good or forever. What is Paul doing? He's encouraging Philemon to see that what has happened is really the outworking of God's providence. He's encouraging Philemon to see that God's hand has been at work in these events. So don't make any mistake about it. Don't make any mistake about it. Onesimus took off of his own volition. He made the decision to steal from his master on his way out the door. He decided to run away to the great city of Rome and to lose himself in the faceless crowds. But Paul says, maybe all of this happened in God's providence. Maybe this is what God used to bring him to an end of himself. Verse 15. Maybe so that you would have him back forever. Sounds a little bit like Joseph, doesn't it? As he meets his brothers and he says to them, Oh, you meant it for evil. You thugs stole me from my father. Sold me to those Midianite slavers, slave traders. I went down and was sold on the, sl- on the slave trestles of Egypt. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. And in this chaotic plan of my life, God was at work. And it sounds a little bit like that here. Maybe that's why he ran away. So that he would be changed. So that God's grace would, be, would catch up with him. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves about our children. Just think about this for one minute. Where is the best place for Onesimus to stay if he's going to become a Christian? In Colossae. We think in Colossae. In his master's house, his master is a Christian. His master goes to church every Sunday. And then when he runs off to Rome, we think to ourselves, oh, there's no hope for him now. That's it, it's all over. He'll never become a Christian now. 
But how mistaken we are because God's grace pursues him, follows him and brings him to an end of himself. And there in the faceless city of Rome he becomes a Christian. And uh, he talks about the providence of God being at work in this boy's life. I don't know if you've got kids that have kicked over the traces and gone their own way. And uh, who knows where they're living now. I've got a son in Dundee University and I've got two girls uh, in, in Edinburgh universities. And, and uh, sometimes I, I wonder what in the world they are doing with themselves. And I wonder... Uh, Sometimes I, I wonder, maybe more than I should, should wonder, maybe it's a father thing, I don't know, but I wonder how well they're doing spiritually. And I think if only they were at home, I could watch them and, and encourage them. And, and, and maybe there is a place for all of that. But what about the providence of God? God is, is in Dundee just as much as he is in Newton Grange. And, uh, and God is wherever your children are this morning. Even if it's Rome, amongst the faceless crowds, with a runaway slave, God can pursue them and bring them to an end of themselves and bring them to faith in Christ. That's what happened to Onesimus. And Paul picks up on that. And he says, maybe that's why, uh, maybe that is the reason why uh, he left you for, you were separated from him for a little while so that you would have him back for good. The last thing, and that's God's pattern. I want you to receive him back, not as a slave but as a brother. Not as a slave, but as a brother. Now, it's unlikely that Paul is asking him to emancipate him. Emancipate, set him free. That would have been largely pointless. But what he is asking for, largely pointless because the first century was built upon slavery. A bit like uh, the 21st century has got all these employment laws. It would have been premature at this point for Paul to say, uh, you should set him free and there should be no more slavery. But what Paul does do is, he says, there should be a complete transformation in your relationship with Onesimus. You should treat him as a brother, not as a slave. You need to start treating him as a brother. Somebody who's got the same Heavenly Father as you have. Whose Heavenly Father is watching how you treat him and how he treats you. A complete transformation in in the relationship. Now I have a younger brother and uh, he's a rugby player and lives uh, in another country. He's got a neck like a tree trunk. And uh, I wouldn't fight with him but I'm sure glad he's my brother if I needed him. And it's a great thing to have a brother. And uh, I know that he is always there if I need him. I know that no matter what the circumstances, if anything happened to me, I know that for sure my brother would be here tomorrow morning to help my wife figure out what needs to be done next. And it's a great thing to have a brother. Like that, at least. And uh, here Paul is saying uh, to Philemon, this guy needs to become your brother. Not just your slave again. He needs to become your brother. And it's not easy for Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to forgive him. He'll have to open up his heart to him. Far easier to hold a grudge, isn't it? King Louis XII of France articulated the feeling of many when he said, Nothing smells so sweet as as the dead body of your enemy. That's what King Louis XII of France said. Nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. But forgiveness is not an option for Christians. Jesus taught us to pray, 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 6.15 If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. And you can, that, I mean, that's pretty straight, isn't it? It's, it's very straight. Peter was asked Jesus on one occasion in Matthew 18.21-22 How many times should I forgive these people? Now, don't think for one minute that that was a superficial question. That was a real question. I mean, don't you think that Peter would have attracted the criticism of others? Oh, there you go again, Peter. The big showman trying to show off walking on water. It's no wonder that you began to sink into the waves. Do you always have to be such a show-off? I mean, he just attracted criticism. And, And one day, he's feeling it, and he asks Jesus, How many times should I, how many times should I forgive these people? Seven times? The rabbis say, oh, only three times. But I'll, I'll go seven times. I've forgiven them seven times, but I'm coming to the end of my tether with them. Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Just keep forgiving, Peter. And, and you might be here and say, well, it's all very well for, uh, for Philemon. It's easy for him to forgive Onesimus, because Onesimus has clearly changed. But what if Onesimus hadn't changed? And what if, what if Onesimus had done something far worse to him? What if Onesimus had done something far worse to Philemon than simply steal and run away? Would he still be expected to forgive him then? And that's a fair question to wrestle with. If you've suffered something like abuse, it's a, it's a fair question and it's a massive question. But I, I ask you this much. What is the alternative what is the alternative? I'll tell you what the alternative is. As a pastor of a church, of two churches over 20 years, observing people, here is the alternative. Resentment. Bitterness. Which leads to anger. Anger builds up and overflows in unpleasant ways. And anger becomes misdirected. And anger that overflows into other relationships, souring them and destroying them. Unforgiveness keeps emotional wounds open and weeping for the rest of your life. It keeps pain alive, unforgiveness. To forgive is to release the pain. It's to take the hook out of yourself. It's to enable the beginning of healing and the beginning of rebuilding. How many angry people do you know? That anger stems from somewhere or something that is more often than not, not the issue of the moment, but some other issue that has taken place in their past. But it's never been really worked through. And I'm not saying it's easy to work through it, but it's never been worked through. And the pain just comes bubbling up and boiling out in all kinds of places and in all kinds of ways. And that will continue until people are able to get a chance to work through the source of the pain. Be kind and compassionate to one another, says Paul in Ephesians, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. You may have uh, noticed in verse 8 that he began with the word therefore. And that therefore is because he says, if all of this is true that I've just said about you, Philemon, then I want you to forgive uh, Onesimus. One of the most powerful prayers, and with this I'm finished, that I heard, one of the most powerful prayers that I've ever read, 
is a prayer that was uncovered written by a child in Ravensbrück concentration camp. Ravensbrück was a concentration camp built in 1939 for women. Over 90,000 women uh, and most of them Jewish and children perished in Ravensbrück, murdered by the Nazis. Corrie ten Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place, was imprisoned there too. And this prayer was found amongst the clothing of the of of a, a, was found in the clothing of a dead child. And this is what it says: "O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will." But do not remember all of the suffering they have inflicted on us. Instead, remember the fruits that we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. And when our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Who could ever write a prayer like that? I doubt if I could. But I am called upon to forgive others, even as God has forgiven me. Thank you so much for listening. We'll finish Philemon next week.